Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. I'm delighted to introduce today's lunchtime talk with painter, writer and Royal Academician Timothy Hyman, who joins us today to discuss his new book, The World New Made, Figurative Painting in the 20th Century, which highlights a range of artists who chose to pursue figurative painting over the last century. Joining him in conversation is curator Roger Malbert, who is the head of Hayward Touring at the Hayward Gallery, where he was responsible for a publicly funded programme of exhibitions of contemporary art, touring to galleries and museums across the UK. Roger is also responsible for the British Art Show, the largest and most ambitious survey of recent art in Britain, which tours to different UK cities every five years. As well as curating, Roger is also the author of Drawing People, The Human Figure in Contemporary Art, published by Thames and Hudson in 2015. And he has written for the art newspaper, Modern Painters, Times Literary Supplement, The Independent and Art Monthly. So I'm now going to hand over to Roger Malbert, who will introduce Timothy Hyman and kick off today's event. Thank you very much, Amy. I think um, many of you will know Tim, and you will know his paintings, um, which are shown regularly at the Royal Academy and, and in exhibitions elsewhere. And his writings on um, Sienese painting and Bonnard, uh, two books published also by Thames and Hudson. His work as a curator, particularly a Stanley Spencer exhibition and, and an exhibition which we, Tim and I will talk about um, in a moment that he co-curated with me called Carnivalesque. He's a writer, a very profound and thoughtful writer on art. Um, and this book is really, I think, the summation of, of a whole lifetime's absorption in painting and the image, and, and both as a, a practitioner and an observer and critic. Um, and it's an astonishingly, I have to say, it's a brilliant book. It's beautifully written, um, and every page is bursting with insights and, and deep research, and everything is very pertinent, and every image in the book is chosen with incredible care, just as the words are chosen with care. Um, so uh, it's, it's a profoundly important book, I think, and, and what it represents, <coughs> its subtitle is a Figurative Painting in the 20th Century, which sounds more neutral than, than probably Tim would intend, because it's, a, it's, it's a, a, a strongly opinionated perspective. It's a very personal take on 20th century painting, and it comes out of, a, um, in a way, a sort of contrarian's struggle, I would say, with, with the orthodoxy, with the canon of modernism, which both he and I endured in different ways during our, our, our education and um, um, life here, and which Tim describes as an imprisoning ideology, the imprisoning ideology of um, the, the, the modernist canon, which more or less precludes the figurative, or at least gives, gives it only a sideways glance, the whole drift towards abstraction, and then from abstraction to concept, minimalism to conceptualism. So what Tim feels passionately about tends to be left out. Um, I'm going to stop in a second, but I thought I'd maybe just quote a word or two from the end, which summarizes Tim's position. Um, because this book is, a, he sees this book, I think, uh, to speak for him as, as a resource for younger painters in the 21st century, that it's a kind of, it's looking back on some of the great masters and mistresses of, of, of 20, 20th century painting um, as a resource um, and just an, a source of inspiration. Um, and in his last 
couple of paragraphs, he talks about the, his, the painting is revealed in this book as no longer an evasion of the political and sexual substance of our lives, but as an historical witness, a reimagining. And then he says, before that, he says, instead of a reductive simplicity of image, this is, as it were, against the kind of impulse towards abstraction and minimalism. Instead of a reductive simplicity of image, a many-figured complexity. Instead of a solemn impersonality, first-person confessions tilted towards comedy. Anybody who knows Tim's work will recognize that as somehow partly a self-description. Instead of a prohibition against illustration, pictorial narratives crowded with historical and literary illusion. Um, so, Tim, I think that's... I'm going to hand over now for you to um, introduce your take on this and maybe talk a little bit in passing about your own um, upbringing into, and education as an artist and evolution as an artist. Um, and we'll start with the cover of the book. Soutine, do you want to say anything about Soutine? Only that the, 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 the problem of finding a title is a huge problem. And eventually it was found... And I'll probably come back to it, but the, the idea that one isn't, as it were, copying the world, one isn't transcribing the world on the whole, although we might do a bit of that too, but, but, but the one is remaking it. And um, probably the dodgiest thing in the book is the concept of the void, which is not my concept. It's perhaps, you know, maybe half the book is what I would call, I didn't use the word in the book, testimony. There's a great deal of testimony in the book. And so one of the testimonies is this intangible problem that artists, when they sit down, I would say most of the best artists, when they sit down to make a figure in the 20th century, it's difficult. And they hit the nothingness, the void, before they make the figure. So something, some sort of concept like that is there in the, in the title. And both Roger, I mean, Roger was desperately trying to get me not to use the word figurative because it, it's a downer for the most part in the 20th century. Mm. It's like, uh, but we might come back to that too. Yes. And just to say, Roger and I did unite in um, what I think was a terrific exhibition. Looking back, this is about the year 2000. We first met probably yes. 77 or 78. And we set off on this quest for the area of imagery really which relates to the history of laughter, um, the, the carnivalesque. And it was a bit more specific than that because carnival is a very specific thing, goodbye to meat and so on. But Ensor was, in a way, the artist who perhaps most fits the bill. Absolutely. And so it's very fateful that we've got Ensor upstairs. And this particular painting we both love, I think, I yes. think pretty unreservedly. So uh, that's one thing. I think it, it surprises both how, talking to people, you know, who are very well informed about art, who profess well, can a I relative ignorance. I mean, he, Roger said that Michael Craig Martin never really come across. Well, he, not, he obviously knew the name, but anyway, yeah, but, but anyway, he, really. he's certainly been part of our, our probably for thirty or forty years. No? I mean, looking at this yeah. painting today, I thought, yeah. well, one of the things it's obvious about it is that the man was laughing at some points during the making of it, and that sense of the carnivalesque of, yeah. the, of, the, of the comic. And it's got and, a dark side, and too. And obviously it has a dark yeah. side, too. Yeah. But um, anyway, let's, we'll press on. One, another one. Sorry. Um, so that's the cover of Carnivalesque, and the next one, and that's the back. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, 
So we were deriving this concept of the carnivalesque partly from um, the, the Russian literary critic Bakhtin and his concept drawn from uh, the Middle Ages, Rabelais, a book he wrote called Rabelais in his world. And there were four... Sorry, not to go into too no, no, much. Sure. It's all right. um, the grotesque body was one of the the, the, the schema of the book was, a, a, was based upon his analysis of, of um, the carnivalesque, mostly in literature. The grotesque body, the comic mask, which we've just seen Ensor epitomizes, um, the world turned upside down, which has a long history, obviously in popular culture as well as in in, um, in high art. And um, the tumultuous crowd. So, so they they all crop up in various ways as themes. They do in, 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 in they, this book. Underlying so. even this book a bit. Yeah. But okay. let's let's start by talking about some yeah. of your source of inspiration. Yeah. Before I ever went to art school, I went to Italy, and in some ways I got a big dose of what I would call you know I'm I'm used to dysfunctional painting. I'm used to painting that is homeless, that has no that is a commodity to a large extent. That's what, we all, that's what we're all involved in if we paint. But in my view, and probably lots of people's view, the greatest of all paintings, and this is, this is one of them for me, this is, this is Ambrogio Lorenzetti. Can, can I just say, if I start to wave the microphone around and you lose my voice, please say. All right. Are you hearing it all right at the back? Yeah. Um, but this is Ambrogio Lorenzetti's well-governed city, in the very heart of Siena. This is actually the council chamber where decisions were made. And it's wonderful to see um, a, a, a sort of art and function fully together, the whole weight of a uh, philosophic view, um, a social view. And so I think I'd ingested that quite deeply before I arrived at the Slane. Now, that was the mid-60s. Now, the next one. And the, the, it was really the moment of probably... By general assent, the, the, the most famous artist of the day would be Barnett Newman. And you've got some Barnett Newman right now downstairs, so you'll get test it out. And that's the painting called Who's Afraid of Red, Yellow, and Blue? And I was very much afraid. You know? I mean, I, I, I couldn't really cope with that moment. And um, quite a lot of my year fell sick, went to mental hospital, uh, dropped out. <laughs> Um, and it was, a, it was a bad time, you know. Uh, so I think that that wound does feed to this day, does fuel uh, my wish for a complex, um, um, uh, many-layered, maybe even literary imagery, which is running through the book. Um, and the, the frontispiece I chose in the end, and these questions of what you put on the cover and what you put in the frontispiece are rather difficult to work out. But I'm sort of glad I put a, a detail from a Beckman, which you'll see a bit later in the talk. Um, because I think that Beckman might be the most representative artist in the book. And I was interested when Roger told me shortly after reading it that he felt that the, the, the whole weight of the 20th century experience was partly riding on Beckman. Well, he does seem a, a, a particularly heroic figure. I mean, both yeah. what he endured and what he, how he sustained himself through that period and great paintings that he made right in the midst of, of the horrors of the war. Um, you, you quote Eric Fischel as saying, as a student, he saw... Was it this painting he saw in the Museum of... Well, it was a departure. It was a departure, and he was daunted by its congested imagery. Um, which is, is certainly is exactly yes, right. Yes, exactly. Is. There's something not very likable about all this crowding, and, and I think a lot of people have that response. Mm -hmm. But 
and I don't think the way through that is to see it as, um, as uh, I, don't think, I don't think explanatory texts really help with that. The point is that he is, he's rebounding from this nothingness. He says something like, you know, you must, you must put in the foreground any old junk will do in order to cut out the, the terrifying void, the terrifying blackness. And he's actually often, I think this is painted on black. A lot of his paintings painted on black. So he's literally piling stuff against the void. And that's the sort of, that's the sort of art that I'm, I understand. That's the, wor- that's the world new made, as far as I can. Okay, we'll this on. is your starting point for the book, though. One, of, one of the starting points. Yeah. This, this is the starting point. Yes, yeah. this one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This is, this is the, I think you all know, it was here not so long ago. This is the Matisse dance, which is about 10 foot, um, made for a function. It was actually there on the, uh, to give a, a sort of new energy to the person who climbed the stairs in Shukin's mansion. But it's also, I think, a wonderful... Um, it's not a reduction, I feel. It is a, it's a real giving new life to the rhythm of, of the innocent, the primitive. And one of the themes right through the book is that, uh, in my view, all the best figurative painters are trying to find their way through to a new... Um, a, a language for the figure that isn't bowed down by the, 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 the traditions of bourgeois representation, which is surrounding you here, shall I say? <laughs> so it's, not, it's non-academic figurative painting. That's what we're talking about. And um, I'm, yeah, we'll, we'll move on, but it, it's yeah. worth mentioning that those two giants, Picasso and Matisse, who loom over the 20th century, so um, you, on the whole, you omit them. I've is sidestepped them. Yeah. I've si- I felt they would capsize my boat. You know, I, if I wanted to really talk about the, the artists I want to talk about, the, it's not that the other ones are minor, my heroes are minor, but I, I don't think I had anything very new to say about Picasso or Matisse, and I, I don't think so. Mm-hmm. And that, that's interesting that I, I questioned one or two other omissions, which I rather took exception to. There are huge and, ones. And, yeah, there are. And, there are I mean, and you said that you, you only included people that you felt you could write about. I mean, well, in some cases, I started to write. I mean, I did write a piece on Bomberg. I wrote a piece on mm-hmm. Derain mm-hmm. and one or two other artists. And they just they didn't convince me, and they didn't seem to add anything to the book. So I... Yeah. You talk about Cubism as a, as a sort of necessary sort of cleansing of pictorial language at the beginning of the 20th century. And like clear, Matisse. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, Matisse, sure. Yeah, both, uh, two, both, both, both of them. Yeah. Um, so do you want to say something about these two well, paintings? Well, just that mm. this is the moment in 1914 when Picasso is just coming out of Cubism and you feel that language could go anywhere. Um, Leger working parallel in his version of a sort of abstracted Cubism, whatever you like to call it, um, goes through two world wars and comes out in the 50s with these big figure compositions, which in a way renew the idea of the history painting. And that's one of the other themes throughout the book, that somewhere at the end of the 20th century is the possibility of a a new kind of complex, large-scale figure composition. And I think Leger is one of the most convincing. But it's not academic art. It's, It's... this is the painting called The Campus. And like Matisse, it's partly about the condition of freedom. Freedom and liberty are bound into the history of 20th century painting, in my view, and just as much in the figuration as in abstraction. And, and uh, so the, 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 the freedom from work, which is really partly what this is about, the, 
Le Bonheur was one of his early titles for this, Happiness. It's about happiness. So I find that a very interesting theme throughout. And there's a, a, a sort of social engagement implicit in this, isn't it? This is a working-class family on holiday, camping on yeah. holiday, and that, that's, again, something that runs through the book. There's a strong political strand, I feel, and, um, and, and Leger is... How would you characterise that strand? Well, I would, I would say, I mean, you, tell, you talk about Leger. I mean, it's very interesting you, you, how many artists' um, political affiliations you refer to, and, and, and you say about Leger that he was an anarchist, syndicalist, um, joined the Communist Party in the 40s after he'd moved to America at a time, the French Communist Party, at a yes. time when he knew that he would be, he'd fail to get back into America yeah, with that Yeah, he would never get car. to the again. Um, but obviously he had a political, you know, he had a yeah. complex political history. Yeah. But uh, libertarian is, is your word, I Libertarian think. is the word I'm trying to use throughout, really, because, because I think a very surprising number of the artists, I'm, more than I expected, when you scratch a bit, they've all had anarchist or libertarian affiliations. Apart from Edward, Edward Hopper, you, and disappointingly you Hopper, say Hopper Cerrone. was a Republican. Uh, no, there are a few, there are a few exceptions to this, of course. Yeah. Of course. But they, I mean, the, most of them had a political position, that's, mm -hmm. uh, which tends to get omitted, you know. From the, at least the sort of art history that I grew up with didn't have much politics in it. I think artist politics is a very interesting matter. So Rousseau is a crucial figure for Leger, for Carlo Carrà in Italy, for... Um, even someone like Stanley Spencer or, or Bupen Kaka, we're going to deal with later. Lots of artists have found that Rousseau is the person they can look to as an example of making these very strong human images without all the trappings of the academic tradition. The early Chagall, I think, is fascinating in that he has his slant, literally, on Cubism, uh, which does a lot for him. I mean, it makes his imagery... This is the painting called Half Past Three, The Poet... Big, very large. I mean, when one sees it in Philadelphia, it's the figure's more than life-size. But the, the, and it's a very monumental picture, but the, the sense of um, fantasy remains in a way that I think, it, it was there a little bit in the Picasso we saw at the beginning, but I think, in general, Cubism doesn't, classical Cubism doesn't allow for fantasy very much. And by the time you get to the sort of Cubist movement, uh, to a large extent, humour or fantasy has been ruled out. But Chagall, I think, um, used, used Cubism in a very interesting way. I come back to him later in the book. And, the, and he, the, this painting represents an insistence on literary associations too, yes, doesn't it? Yes, yes. I mean, he, he's reading a poem by Bloch, Alexander Bloch. We know that he was interested in people like... Uh, um, um, Klebnikov and Mayakovsky, and the idea of a sort of this, what, what they call nonsense, nonsense realism. So that's, I think, part of the, the language of Ernie Chagall. And then the upside down head, sorry. Sorry, yeah. and then, and then you, you describe this as the greatest illustrated book of the 20th a, a century. A bit later in the book, I turn to the, the story of Chagall and his transformation. First, he goes back to Russia. He's a great supporter of the revolution. He wanted to assist in the revolution and got edged out, very interestingly, by Malievich, who had already ceased to paint. Malievich was there as um, a kind of hatchet man, almost a, a proto-Duchampian, you see, uh, believing that, that uh, pa painting was a, a basically an outmoded, an outmoded language and that uh, the, 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 true, the true 
supporter of the revolution would certainly give up painting. That would be it. So it was very hard for Chagall, and he, his status dropped literally. He became a third-class citizen within, and, and he could hardly feed his children. And eventually he had to write to Lunacharsky, a letter I didn't know till quite recently, where he, he just, he says, you know, there's just no place for me. What can I do? And so he leaves Russia, but he makes this wonderful testament to Gogol's dead souls. And very like Gogol himself, as an exile, writing in Rome, in the 1840s, Chagall, through Gogol, makes this, I think, wonderful sequence of, for Vola, for Ambrose Vola, this wonderful sequence of uh, almost, I think, 100 etchings, um, which have remained curiously little known. I mean, a lot of people don't seem to know about these. They weren't published till 1948, so that's a factor. But they were, they, they, this is just one example of, I'll just go into it a tiny bit, because uh, the figure is, can you see a tiny little figure? A figure is entering the, the, the broken down house of one of these dreadful landowners that the, the fraud Chichikov is joining among. He says it looks like an invalid on its last legs, this, uh, this house. But behind it is a garden that's been left to rack and ruin, like the house, but has become something absolutely beautiful. Now there's about a page of description, which is very unlike the rest of the book. And almost every Russian, I'm told, when they read this extraordinary book, they take this passage to be a reference to Russia. Russia is the neglected garden that has gone completely haywire but become something beautiful. So I think for Chagall this was a very emblematic thing. And there's virtually no trace of Cubism left, you see. Although, you, you see what I mean? He's, he's had to liberate, through Cubism, he's had to, find, to liberate his language. So if one, one strand in the book is concerned with the highly subjective and the intimate, then another side of it is, to, is, is, is a concern for, as it were, the public function, yeah. the social function of art. And, and the mural um, does come into the book, surprisingly, in a way. And, and this, you've chosen this really wonderful um, mural by um, Diego Rivera, which you say is one of about 100 that he painted in Mexico. In a courtyard. I mean, it's a series of courtyards. I mean, there's that, yeah. Do you want to say something about the, the, the particular... I mean, this is an early one, and it's, it's full of characters, yeah. isn't it? It's very yeah. like Ensor, in a way. It could be almost as yes, like yes. the entry um, of Christ. I mean, I, I think the whole... I should say, Rivera was a friend of Picasso, was um, picture-making in, in the Cubist mode, in a rather doctrinaire mode, in fact, um, for many years in Paris. And uh, he shared lodgings with Mondrian. You know, there are all, all these interconnections that are very interesting, I think. Mm. But um, at some point, he started to feel that his... Uh, he, he, wanted, he wanted actually to go to Russia at the time of the revolution. At some point, he felt that there was an incompatibility between the language of his Cubist picture-making and what he had to say. And he had to reinvent himself. And he was given this extraordinary boon, really. The, 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 the Civil War had ended in Mexico, and the new powers that be commissioned uh, Rivera to spend 18 months initially just looking at all the great mural schemes from Giotto through to Gotsley mm. and so on. And so out of this, he comes armed with an ideology of the mural. Uh, now, the mural is obviously something very different in a, essentially an, an illiterate, a largely illiterate world, uh, looking for national identity, as Mexico was at that point. I don't think the Rivera model will do for our sort of society. 
But nevertheless, I think it's fascinating as a story. And it was very much left out of my education. It wasn't hardly mentioned. Here's somebody that's probably left out of almost all of our educations. <laughs> Fassi, another example, an artist inspired partly by uh, the Italian... Um, murals of Assisi and so on. So this is, this is as it were, that's muralism one, this is muralism two. This is an artist who was described by Satajit Ray, his, his student, as the, for him the greatest work of art in India in his time. And this is a, just one wall of a, uh, three, three great mural walls of the lives of the Hindi saints, or the lives, sorry, the lives of the Indian saints, they're not strictly Hindi. They're, they're, um, they're, and they're often popular saints working outside the caste system. Some of them might be hybrid Muslim, etc. And so um, what makes it so different from, from Rivera is that they're not designs. They're not, Rivera actually is getting his students very often, a whole team, to fill in the, 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 what is really a drawing. I mean, that's, that's, that's how he was able to cover this vast footage. But Binod Bihari is up there um, not knowing what he's going to do, in a way, in the course of the day. And he's, he's short-sighted, and he's working very... So you get some sense from that slide, just how um, intuitive his way of working on the wall. And I'm very interested in that possibility of working in touch, you might say, which is more like Lorenzetti, working with a touch... Um, um, sensitivity on the wall instead of this this design aesthetic. And this, this beautiful, wonderfully titled painting by Nolde, Excited People. I was telling Roger that when I was at Slade and uh, totally desperate and had just finished my de Kooning phase, as it were, um, I, uh, I, I made, I'd seen this in black and white and made a sort of completely wrong coloured copy of it as a starting point for making very gory, expressionistic pictures. But it was still, it was, I, I still have a sort of certain love for this. Mm. Nevertheless, I think the, the moment I wanted to focus on was when German artists, after the war, felt expressionism was too um, narcotic, they use words like narcotic, hysterical, mm. subjectivist, and developed what they called the new thingness, all right, or the, the neue Sachlichkeit many translations of that, but the new thingness is quite a nice one, I think, where you would, you would emphasise the object, the facts, rather than your subjectivity. So let's... Now, the, another one? Go on, yes. Unless you, unless you want to... No, 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 no. And so um, one of the great lost paintings of the 20th century is Otto Dix's The Trench, that he began quite soon after the war, couldn't go on with, couldn't, couldn't resolve, finally did resolve it, and you get Alfred Barr, the, the founder of the Museum of Modern Art, saying this is perhaps the most famous painting done since the war. But none of us really know this picture. And of course it disappeared. It, it, was, it was in the... Uh, it was in the uh, Degenerate Art Exhibition, yes, but they entered the Antarctic Kunst. And we don't know if it was, if it was burnt or sold or what, bombed. We don't know. What, what's it, but it, anyway, it's disappeared. I mean, it does bring home to, to one the, the yeah. degree to which this is entangled with history in the 20th yeah, century. Yeah, yeah. This is, it's yeah. not and, a, and, and, and that is, again, one of the themes of, of, with certain British artists, too, how the war changed, the First World War already changed everything. Um, Dix's portrait of his parents, I think, is a wonderful non-ironic. I mean, most of Dix's portraits are ironic, but he really does um, recreate the world. Yeah, and it's not, you know, I, I, 
doubt, I doubt if he was doing it even in front of them. I mean, maybe parts of it were, but it's not an academic portrait, but it's very fully realised in terms of her, um, remaking them. And I, I would make the analogy to someone like, um, not Grunewald, but maybe, you know, a certain kind of 16th century person beginning to move from the medieval to, to committed representation. Mm. It's a primal, a primal language. So it, it could almost be an American regionalist. Also, portrait. also. I mean, I think we're going to get an American regionalist show here mm-hmm. uh, next next year. Yeah. Um, you say a lot about about us, which is really interesting. And I and and I, I wanted just to comment on one of the omissions from the book. It, it, well, surrealism is more or less missing, except as a subtext. And and obviously, Baltus represents one of the moments when. Surrealism does, and you quote, you say that Balthus said he wanted to, as, just as Cezanne said, he make he wanted to remake Poussin from nature. Um, Balthus wanted to remake surrealism from life, from from nature, from real, yeah. from yeah. nature as yeah. well. Yeah, um, and this painting, well, it obviously another omission from the book. Sorry to go harp on the omission to the other one is no, no, De Chirico, and De Chirico said, you know, De Chirico's famous remark about the correspondence between. Um, Perspective and the metaphysical um, really does apply to this very uncanny and haunting painting. And do you want to just say something, a couple of things well, about? He, I mean, Balthus is only this. 25 when he paints this, which is probably is his masterpiece. And it's painted on red. Uh, and when you see it in the life, it doesn't really come through in reproduction. There are little glints of red all around this grey, and and that's that's the sort of heartbeat of Balthus, I think, at his best. Where there, um, it, it's like he's there's a classical overlay, greys and sober, sombre but there's this sort of Eastern European Jewish weirdo still there and um, Roger was struck by the sort of geometry of it all which of course one is and for instance um, there's a figure quoted really from Piero della Francesca, the white figure um, and that straight back is straight down the centre of the picture Mm -hmm. and the horizontal central line goes straight under the the little the head of the the only figure in the picture who's got his eyes open, and I call him the puppet master. Yes. So there's a, there's this puppeteer aspect to Baltis, which I think is very fertile and interesting. I, I love the way you describe that that sort of childlike head as it perched like a piece of fruit on the edge of a table in a still life. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's a, it's um, yeah it's an amazing. Amazing painting, and another couple of Balthus, another aspect of Balthus. I mean, we're talking about the puppet as one uh, dominant trope, and another one being child in the world of childhood, it's sex, sexuality of children. She is also um, a puppet. Yes, yes, <laughs> sure. Um, but yes, yes. I, I mean, he, there's a wonderful letter which has only relatively recently been published, where he writes to his beloved Antoinette, saying that he's he wanted to proclaim the truth about sexuality. So all Balthus's later denials about, you know, that he was just, this is a painting should be forgotten. It's just not true. Balthus was very deeply involved in this painting. He was trying mm-hmm. to, trying to uh, get at the number of things, fueled by people like Bataille, Bataille. who was his mentor. So again, intellectually, it's a very important moment. And Balthus is still someone who's ridiculously left out of lots of accounts. I mean, I could give you chapter and verse, but there's a huge book by Christopher Green, and I wrote to him questioning why, why would, it's on 
French art in the 20th century, no Balthus. I said, well, why is there no Balthus? I mean, I'm interested to know what your, uh, uh, what your animus is. You say, oh, I just forgot about him. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. Um, and then there's the, the, the almost completely straight, and I think painted from life, picture of Miro with his daughter. And again, this, fu this fusion of the adult and the child, which is part of what he's about. But I've always felt that if I'd seen that picture when I was at the Slate, my life might have been a bit different. I might have had more faith in representation, whereas I found, I found the kind of representation that had been taught by the man who painted that, for instance. Um, who was there, John Aldridge. Um, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't helpful to me. It, it had nothing to do with modernism. Somehow this does. Balthus's closest friend was Giacometti. I think Giacometti's person holding the void, literally, that's what it's called, that great statue of, of nothingness, a sort of robotic figure, is sort of behind that in a way. You could, okay. So we switch gear, and, yep. and maybe you can say a little bit. I'm Stanley Spencer figured in a major way in your life, and as a, as a critic and writer and curator as well. Yes, as I mean, I mean, I loved Stanley Spencer when I, before I went to the stage. Then I denied him, and I felt guilty about it. And I've had the good fortune, much later in life, to be allowed to to um, to to do things, if you like, to 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 compensate for my my denials. Um, and uh, I, do, I think that he was, you know, he was simply an unmentionable. You, you, you were asking for trouble. I would say until about 20 years ago, uh, we, we, the older ones among us can all remember a time when Sandy Spencer wasn't actually hung in the main body of the Tate. Of the Tate. It was hung in the stairwell to the Louvre. <laughs> that was a long, a long period. They couldn't quite get rid of him. But um, uh, uh, especially this early picture which is really his, his pre-war masterpiece, which is now owned by both Sheffield and the Tate. They have a half share in it, and it goes between the two. But, um, and I won't say too much about it, but, mm -hmm. um, but the, the transition from that pre-war picture to this painting of the 1930s, um, where about three months before he marries this woman, he paints this terrifying, I think terrifying, the leg of mutton nude, about... Um, sexual um, non-consummation. I, I think that's what it's about. Um, there's a fire burning, but he can't do much about it. Um, and brings him strangely close to his, his counterparts in Germany. So the very first time this was shown in the new Tate Modern, uh, they had it beside Christian Schad's self-portrait with a model. And the, the juxtaposition was fascinating because um, Shad is profoundly ironic. I would say that, that Spencer is absolutely non-ironic. Uh, again, three months after painting that, or three or four months, he's painting this in a completely different language about his, his relationship with his first wife. And he begins to have a peculiarly um, a divided language between straight and, as it were, crooked. Uh, uh, language and that's happened to quite a lot of painters, I think, in the 20th century. And it's very poignant once you begin to be aware of it. So one of the chapters in the book is entitled um, "First Person Painting." First Person Painting, and um, it's about the the, the person subjective and the confessional. Would you say in the autobiographical? Uh, yes, and, and and the way that painting can be a quest for the self, but also um, 
the use of the self as protagonist of your own work. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I don't think happened very much until the 20th century. It's a long, it's a big chunk of 20th century art that hasn't been sufficiently, if you like, owned up to because it's so, you know, it's so literary. Um, it's so anti... Um, uh, 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 a lot of the universalities that the, the best 20th century art has claimed, it would seem to negate that. Right, and one of the things yeah. you were asserting is, you know, against yeah. the impersonal, yeah. um, you know, the, the, the personal. And Bonnard, I guess, this, this painting in particular, mm. there's a glimpse of the, of the, of the painter himself. And the painter yes, in so. his relation, it's not a nude, it's Pierre and Mart in, we're, we're plunged into their relationship. And, and would you say something about um, the vision, the, the, the subjective vision, as opposed to, I mean, one of the things you well, mentioned is, that, I mean, I noticed one of the things that's missing from the book is the camera, and any painting, more or less, any painting that's derived from photography. And you do say that um, Bonnard himself gave up the Co his Kodak camera in 1916, yeah. I think, and, and, and believed in the mobile, you know, the, 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 the mobile vision, the sense from the eye. Which itself. he mainly did through drawing, through very mm -hmm. rapid drawing, small drawings that are the basis of almost all his best later paintings. So you had to, he, for about 18 months, and I make the parallel later with Guston, he more or less stopped painting. The, the linear is how he finds his way through, back into, again, remaking the world. Mm -hmm. um, so in this, or do you want to move on to this? No, I do, the only thing I want to say is that the, in general, I, I am very interested in the perceptual. I mean, and, and the, things that the things that happen with the eye. Uh, Bonnard said, said, painting the transcription of the adventures of the optic nerve. So I, 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 I like that. And, mm. and, uh, and so, um, but there aren't, there aren't, Bonnard's probably the most, the, 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 the place where that surfaces most in this mm. book. But, okay. His, but this is another example, isn't it, of, of somebody drawing in the street, which is something you love to do, incidentally. <laughs> yes, um, yes. Um, Kirchner, just before the First World War, really found himself in this, um, this metropolitan, rather threatening world. And out of those sorts of little, very numerous little sketchbook drawings, he makes he, probably his masterpiece, which is Potsdamer Platz, six foot, huge figure, I mean, you're, and, and that sense of being right up against the figure when you see it in the life. I mean, she is a, she's, she's a life-size figure, the central figure. And um, the sense of the little, the plunging back and around into these little paranoid males, it's a powerful thing. I mean, we've all, we, it's all been made into a bit of a cliche, and already was by Dr. Caligari, uh, you know, just after the war, but, but I think that Nevertheless, Hirschen does hold as at his best as a marvelous artist. Here's a highly subjective, fantastical painting by yeah. Frida Kahlo. Again, this this is the the, uh, the frontispiece of that chapter, uh, the the first person yeah. painting. Yeah. Um, do, um, do you want to skate well, over it? Just or? that I mean, when you start thinking about what it's about, it's about her feet, and then the area from her feet forward to us, as it were. We become her in the bath, and. Our identity is extremely complex, and there are many narratives built into her identity. And, uh, and I say, on one level, they're almost bath toys, but they, but they are, and there's a funny sort of calm about it, despite the erupting volcano with a skyscraper coming out of it. And so, on. But, but she does get, I think, in that particular picture, a wonderful sense of um, the complexity of her identity. And there, I quote quite a lot of her testimony in words as well, where she's, she's very conscious of that. 
doesn't she? Um, you say you quote her as saying, "I am disintegration." I am disintegration. And uh, uh, Breton, that was the, the, the image that Breton and Duchamp actually both selected as, as, as uh, the, the, the one they really valued and started her on, a, on a, an art career, really, because they exhibited her in Paris. Tim, we're, 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 we're starting to run out of time. Yeah. But, uh, we, we can give, skip. Okay, let's skip but whatever you think we should Roger skip. Roger doesn't terribly like um, Charlotte de Salomon, so shall we skip it? All right. <laughs> I, I, I love her. But, but <laughs> um, self-portraits. Here's a couple of self-portraits. Uh, there, are, there are these dramatic self-portraits by Bonnard, on the one hand, the boxer, or by Beckman, very numerous ones where in this case, right at the end of the war, he's carving out from the black this identity. I mean, it, must, it began as a black, a black surface. You can see him carving it out. So here are, is one, one of the yeah. two triptychs. That, that, that is actually the one from which the... This is, he begins to re, recast his own history in terms of these triptychs where um, to write and to... Well, here, I mean... This is, this is really just before the war, and that's what it's about. It's about Mars is chatting up an ice cream girl, you see. <laughs> so, uh, the gods are still in, are still in the green room. They're, 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 it's time off, as it were. They haven't really started their, their game. Um, and, uh, but I, I still would like to see these as essentially almost... Um, statements of the complexity of things, just how complex life is. And I find that a, a good premise. And similarly, one. this is painted during the terrible hunger winter of Amsterdam, when he's stuck in Amsterdam as a German citizen in a city under occupation. It's an extraordinary position to be in. Uh, and there's no electricity and no light. And he, he works for about a year, uh, partly on this, this memory, really, of life as it was at the end of the Weimar period. And I try and relate it to Ken Kiff. In the current RA magazine, there is this, an extract which brings Ken Kiff and Ensor together, for better or for worse. I think you've, you, over, you overdo it with Ensor, yep. over with Kiff. You <laughs> give him too much, considering yep. the people that, for another a mission, yep. is, is Cobra, yep. and uh, yep. people so like Asher, you want to Sorry. Say, <laughs> yeah. This is the painting called Talking with a Psychoanalyst. And, and uh, Kitai. Yep. Well, again, an apostle of complexity, um, sometimes doing it in a sort of almost schematic way early on. I think this is a fascinating picture, but um, uh, with almost like an like a advent calendar, you know, you're sort of opening, opening windows into the picture. And uh, it's still an interesting poem. Or, or these more lyrical, um, but still ultimately collaged, Statements where you, you um, I mean, this is a big diptych. This is about six, six, probably his biggest painting, actually. And it's always been in Berlin. And I think it's influenced Penck and uh, uh, Neil Rauch and quite a lot of German painting, I think, comes out of this picture. Bupen Kaka, I hope some of you saw the show that's only ended about three weeks ago, at, on for five months at Tate Modern. Um, the, the, the great for me, the great Indian painter of the late 20th century, talking very marvellously about his sexual predicament um, uh, and about 
the, 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 the language that one has to find in India for um, hybridity. But we'll, I think we better mm -hmm. just okay. hasten on yeah, yeah. to make our, our date. Mm -hmm. um, Red Grooms is someone both Roger and I have been interested in um, and it helps to define a sort of subculture within, which I try to go into a bit, in New York, which is different on the one hand from pop and different because it's not, it's not cool, it's an uncool kind mm. of pop, but it's certainly different from Abex, although he's, he admired abstract expressionism, as nearly everyone did and does. It's not that they're negating. I'm certainly not negating what the achievement of American painting there's an early Baslitz. Early Baslitz, a sort of, I've made the equivalent, Germans. I've suggested that he's the equivalent of, of Oscar in the Tin Drum. He's the sort of, he's the suppressed monster uh, within the German cleansed Bauhaus dominated aesthetic. Uh, uh, okay. Yeah. Um, and this that is. Was that's, that's, no, sorry, Neurath. I've, yes. I've ended with Kentridge. In this lecture, that isn't the end of the book. But, but since he's all round us, I've just been up to, I've just seen Lulu at ENO. I've just Kentridge's Lulu. To some of you know that, it's a marvelous production, I think. But and I've just went, been up to Edinburgh to see something. He, he's at the Whitechapel, so it's Kentridge's moment, and it's a very interesting moment because, again, I think the possibility of making drawing the basis for a kind of history, history language, a language talking about the the state of the nation, South Africa, about apartheid, about contemporary life, in a way that I think um, he couldn't have done through photography. Mm. It's not that, in my view, in my view, they're quite slightly stodgy drawings when you see them just non-projected, but once they've been projected with music, with a sense of their changing, their metamorphosis, You've, most of you are familiar now with Kentridge's films, projected drawings, I think they become something magical, marvellous. Um, so that's one a deployment of drawing, traditional yes, drawing, yes, in, a, yes. in a new medium. I mean, just to go to, and the, linear, to yeah. the essence of the book, you were arguing for, you passionately for the validity and the importance of painting as a vehicle, a medium. You say a vehicle for dream, vision, prophecy. Yeah, um, and, uh, which is based in a way on putting a line around something very often, daring to put a line around something. And, and, and skewing uh, photography, more or less entirely. And, and <laughs> is, that, is that a recipe for the future, I wonder? I mean, given well, the ubiquity of the camera. The, the big, the big um, recent polarity Roger and I have had is that his book on drawing people included no drawings whatever from the eye, none. And he didn't seem to be... I mean, he was, I think he was a bit shocked when I said it. Well, no, I didn't find... I, 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 yes, I, of course. Yeah, but, I mean, but, I was looking for in, sort of inventiveness, but there were a lot of people who were drawing yeah. in a slate. You could but say, a huge from number of them were using... I would say almost half of them were using photographs yeah. as the found, the found image. They were drawing from the photograph. And uh, uh, the, the rest would be drawing from the head, as it were, or indeed from the... But you, but you take an ethical p p position, really, in relation to drawing from observation, <laughs> it seems to me. Um, yes, uh, but I mean, in the, well, there's one moment in the book which I really objected to, where he said, you know, people can go horse riding, and it's perfectly valid. Uh, it's just, you know, making the analogy between those who still go horse riding and those who still draw from the line. No, I don't think... No. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're going to have to stop. Thank you.
Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.